everybody. Welcome to another edition of the PR Masters podcast series. I'm Arch Stevens, your host, and I'm also managing partner of the Stevens Group, which is a leading facilitator of mergers and acquisitions in the PR and digital interactive space. As you know by now, the PR Masters podcast honors living legends in our profession, individuals who have made a mark in the world of public relations and communications. And our guest today, a very special guest, certainly meets those criteria. Our guest today is Joe Lockhart. And Joe is former White House Secretary under President Bill Clinton. And so he will bring us a perspective today from yet another side of the world of public relations, that of being in-house communicator for the most powerful leader in the world, the President of the United States. So Joe served under President Clinton from 1998 to 2000, during which he managed the daily press briefings. He provided senior counsel to the president, and he managed communications through the president's impeachment proceedings. Very interesting, very timely. So he is a, a longtime member of the Washington community. Um, he's also been on television. Uh, he started out as a... Uh, a uh, newscaster and a journalist working for ABC News and CNN. Uh, he's also the founder of the Glover, Glover, sorry, Glover Park Group uh, in Washington, D.C., which is a well-known communications strategic firm. And he's also been involved in Facebook, where he was VP of Global Communications. And in 1916, he was named by the National Football League as the Executive Vice President overseeing communications, government affairs, social responsibility, and philanthropy. That is quite quite a background, I must say. I mean, uh, blue chip names to say the very least. Welcome, Joe. It's good to have you here. How are you today? I'm very good. I'm glad to be here. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and uh, we'll have a nice conversation for the next 40 minutes or so, uh, because uh, I, as well as our listeners, are eager to learn about the inside life of Joe Lockhart, particularly in the White House and the National Football League and Facebook. Uh, that's enough for a start, I would think, to start a conversation. But I'll start with this question, Joe. What was the first full-time job that, that job that you ever had at the start of your career? Uh, the first job that didn't involve a gas station, a restaurant, um, was I took some time off of college to volunteer on the Jimmy Carter reelection campaign in 1980. Uh, and that turned into a job. Uh, and that also turned into a career. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to, after working for a long time with no pay to get a low paying job. Uh, but it really uh, set the path for where I was going. Uh, and then I finished college by, um, doing a campaign every fall and going to college in the spring for over the next three years. So um, coming out of college, I was one of the few uh, uh, kids of my friends who actually had a job. Well, you went to Georgetown, I see. Your, I did uh, indeed. So the one thing we have in common is that my lovely niece, Samantha, uh, also attended Georgetown. So uh, today I'm talking to another alumnus of the team. It's, it's, it's a great place. <laughs> Uh, so how did you get from there to being White House secretary for what you just described? Well, I, you know, I, 
Over the next, I guess, so 15 years, I worked on a bunch of campaigns, um, uh, some that we won, you know, congressional races, governor's races, three very high profile presidential races that lost. I worked for um, Carter, Mondale and Dukakis. And then I took a turn and decided to uh, try my hand on the other side of the fence uh, in television news. And that was a it was a great sort of three year experiment, uh, but uh, I really missed the politics. Uh, so uh, when Bill Clinton uh, came into office, I worked on his reelection campaign and then went into the White House and a couple of years later became the press secretary. What scared you to politics in the first place? Uh, you know, it's it's, uh, it's it's certainly not being an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. Uh what, what, what piqued your interest in that uh, at the outset of your career? Yeah, honestly, I, I grew up in a, a journalist television family. My dad worked for NBC News. My mom had worked for NBC. And periodically, um, uh, when we were growing up, she'd do assignments with them. <clears throat> and I, I remember having a career conversation with, with my dad, and he was pushing me on what I wanted to do. And he said, well, do you want to work in news? And as a typical 19-year-old, I said, well, I wouldn't want to do what you do because you're, you're old. Um, <laughs> and he said, do you want to work in politics? Because we'd been around. We would, we would summer vacation at political conventions. Uh, we'd, he took me up to the New Hampshire primary in 1976. So this was always around. Um, and I said, I don't want to work in politics. Politicians you know, have to be nice to people, and I can't imagine doing that all day long. And he said, well, you know, there's people in campaigns that get to tell reporters and news people what to do. And I said, oh, I, that I want to hear about. And he described for me about how advanced press advance worked and how communications worked. And he connected me with uh, someone who was in the White House. Um, and I called them every day at the same time for, I think, 35 consecutive days. Uh, they finally said, you're the most persistent person uh, we've ever met come on in. And they, I was, had my first campaign job. I uh, wasn't getting paid, but I had a job. I was in the door, which was all I wanted. And after that, I never really wanted to do anything different. So to my mind, you know, being press secretary for the president of the United States has to be one of the toughest jobs in the world. And, you know, you're the funnel to the most powerful leader in the world. And my question to you is, how do you prepare for something like that? And what advice would you give to, if there, if there is such a thing, aspiring White House press secretaries in our audience? Uh, how do you prepare? You, you know, you don't just step in. You know, you don't go, you know, to Harvard, then to McKinsey, then become White House press secretary. You work on campaigns. You know, you gain experience. You work in a Senate office. You work in a governor's office. Um, that's that's the career path. Um, I think. Once you're in and to do the job well, uh, obviously you have to work hard, but you also have to have, you know, a keen political sense, uh, a real sense about how the media works. Uh, I'd say 99% of the battles that happen between uh, the White House and the media is neither side understands how the other side works. Um, And if you're able to have done both or understand it, you're, you're, you have a leg up on everyone else. Um, and then you need to have the instincts of a reporter. Um, there are a lot of people around the White House, mostly well-intentioned, some not so well-intentioned, 
who will tell you things that are not completely true. It's incomplete. So if someone tells you we're going to cut taxes by 10 percent and it's going to help this group of people, you know, you have to go find a couple more people to tell you that. And if you start getting different answers, you know, okay, this is a contentious issue. You need to get everybody in a room uh, uh, to, you know, decide or, or at least be able to articulate the administration's policy. Uh, and one of the great things about uh, there's been a debate over the last few years about uh, whether the White House briefing. One of the great things about the White House briefing is it enforces a discipline among the White House staff. You know, if you have a briefing at one o'clock, you've got to make decisions before one o'clock. And because, you know, the press secretary will know what issues they're going to get hit on that day. And it, it, it's almost an organizing principle for policy discussions that this policy discussions are not open-ended. We've got to come to a conclusion, if not for today's briefing, then tomorrow's briefing. Uh, and that discipline has a big impact. I think you saw what happened in the Trump administration, that they didn't have that, that they tended to sort of bounce around a lot and uh, contradict each other and um, uh, lose trust uh, among the press corps that hurt them in the end when they really needed the trust. Well, I think uh, obviously there was a lot of contentiousness that took place during the past four years between the White House and all of its representatives, you know, and the media, the so-called uh, fake news media. Um, so there seemed to be a lot of tension in the air, you know, when any, whenever any White House press secretary started a, uh, a, a press briefing. Um, that, I think, is something I believe you avoided uh, during your tenure as press secretary. And so my question to you is, you know, even though, the, you know, you're on different sides of the fence, um, what lessons do you think future press secretaries can learn from what took place during the past four years? Oh, well, a lot. Uh, uh, but I'll, I'll start with my experience. You know, you've, you've got to really love doing it because it's, it's a hard thing to do. Uh, and the people who do well at it love doing it. Uh, I loved walking out there and doing that. I, I was scared to death. Uh, I was worried I was going to start a war or crash the economy. But the, um, you know, the sort of intellectual combat that went on in the room was just something that uh, I just thought was um, uh, rewarding and fun. Uh, and if you can get that in a job uh, and it doesn't kill you, that, that's that's pretty good. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things about the contention in that room is I think a lot of people mistake it for hostility. Uh, in a normal White House, there is a contentious atmosphere. And uh, the way I describe it is the White House wants to present a picture, but it's a, it's photoshopped a little. You know, it's sort of you take off some of the rough edges and the press believes that it's that the picture isn't real at all. And they want to pull back the layers and see the real picture. And that's where the contention is. You, you don't want to give everything away. Um, uh, but, but, uh, you can't, you can't go so far off there that you, the picture isn't real or truthful. Uh, and over the last four years, they abandoned that. They just decided that, uh, they only were interested in talking to their own people, about 40% of the country. And they knew those people would believe the lies. Uh, and 
uh, and they did. Uh, uh, and they thought that that was a great strategy. It was a great strategy until we had a crisis. Uh, when the virus hit, the president needed everyone to believe what he w- was saying. Uh, and most of America didn't believe it. So, and it's impossible to mobilize the country without some level of trust uh, and some level of a sense that the president's got your back or is, you know, uh, working with you. And the, uh, Trump didn't have that. So the communications operation uh, worked well for their base, but was completely useless for the rest of the country. Um, and I think it's a, it's really a case in point on uh, how you have to do the job, which is, you know, sometimes it's better to tell your, tell the truth and take some knocks than to lie and kick the can down the road because it's going to bite you in the ass at some point. So, you know, so given that, uh, is it fair to say, you know, that when a uh, White House press secretary uh, starts the briefing, uh, whoever that person is, um, the media really does hang on every word, you know, and and, and uh, attempts to uh, break it down, uh, see if it conforms to, you know, to what they know to be the truth. Um, um, and what kind of pressure does that put on a on you as a White House secretary or any subsequent White House secretary to really watch your words so carefully that it gets a little bit scary because the, the whole country is hanging on your words. Yeah. I'll, let me answer it, answer it in you know, sort of a very specific way there. There's no room for freelancing uh, and everybody wants to stand up there and show what they know. There's a performance aspect um, uh, to it and that can't be denied. And everyone wants to look smart, but there are just times and some issues that, are so sensitive that the best thing you can do is either say you don't know if you don't know or look down at the paper that someone else has prepared and read it word for word. And nobody likes doing that because you can tell, you know, you you watch any press secretary will occasionally just read it. Uh, And there were all sorts of places around the world, um, China, Taiwan, the Middle East. Um, You know, my favorite was, um, uh, you know, the, the battle um, with Greece and Cyprus, uh, because this is ongoing. And and we had a Greek reporter who'd come in every day and he knew that his question would never get answered um, because I wasn't going to spend all day learning about Greek-Cyprus tensions unless he told us what he was interested in. So he'd call somebody every day and say, I want to ask about this today. And, you know, the smart people at the NSC would type something up for me and I just read it, you know, and everybody in the room, I was knew I was reading it. They knew why. And the problem was one day he came in with two questions and he asked the question and he had a very heavy Greek accent and I didn't really understand the question. And he asked again and I finally said, could you speak a little louder? And he asked a third time and it wasn't, it wasn't the booming of his voice. It was, I didn't understand the accent. So I finally had to turn to my NSC guy and say, was that question one or two? Uh, and he said, that's two. So I said, okay, I've got an answer for two. And I read it. And like everybody in the room laughed. Everybody knew what was happening, but it sure was a lot better than me guessing, screwing up and raising the tensions in an already volatile situation. Uh, and, 
you know, I, it, I mean, it was slightly embarrassing to me, but not nearly as bad as, you know, just trying to make it up to show I was smart. Obviously, Joe, there's so much going on in the world at any given time, both domestically, internationally, and so on, on, on so many different subjects. How did, how did you decide, you know, what the briefing would consist of? What, how did you focus on the main topics to be covered in any, in any one day? And how did you prepare for them? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, so there's some art and some science in this. Um, uh, the art is knowing what the press is going to ask. Um, and that's just comes from constant interaction. I used to have a fight, a fight at times with the president, but you know, with the senior staff, when the president would be go out to take a couple questions about what they'll ask. And they would always, I'd say, they're going to ask about this today. And they'd say, no, they're not. No, they're not. This is way more important. And I just would look at them and say, they're going to ask about this. Trust me. And 99% of the time I was right. Because they didn't ask about necessarily the most important thing. They asked about what was on their mind, what they were talking with their editors about, what they were talking with the other journalists about. And, you know, I, I knew what it was because they were asking me about it. Um, uh, so that's uh, part one. The second part is, uh, you know, you get a, you know, a briefing book is put together for you every day. And it has probably anywhere between 75 to 100 different subjects. Uh, and to, to master 75 subjects, you know, in two hours or two and a half hours, which is what you have is impossible. Um, but the, the trick is to know what the new information is and what the old is. And what I used to do is, uh, I would put the new stuff at the front of the book and really study that hard and then just flip through the rest of the stuff, having known I've read it three, four, five, six times, and it just finds a way into your brain somehow. Uh, and I, I remember when the White House was over, someone gave me a couple of binders uh, with the transcripts of the um, briefings. And I don't know, six months later, I pulled one out and looked at it. And I thought, how did I know all this stuff? I, I, you know, it's all gone now. And I remember it was just information accumulates over time. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's just, just some of it's just hard work. Uh, but you, you get a sense, uh, over time, the real, um, skill though, and this is total art, not science is not knowing what questions being asked of you. It's being able to decipher what neck, what the question they're setting up is, you know, so they may ask, you know, uh, is the sun out today? And you look out and you know, what the sun is out, um, but you've got to think for a second, and it's one second, why are they asking me that? Because you don't want to answer a question and get immediately boxed into a corner. So that's why you see press secretaries at times giving vague or not complete answers to very straightforward questions. Because the good ones know that that very straightforward question is setting up a really hard question after it. And if you've established one position... Um, in order to, you know, show that you know the answer to the first thing, uh, that makes it much more difficult. So at times you're, you know, you don't, uh, you, you just give a kind of throwaway answer until the reporter reveals what they really want to know. Now, sometimes they just want to know if the sun is out. Um, so it can be, a, it can, it can get a little silly. 
but most of the time, um, you know, reporters are looking for a way and it's and this is healthy. They should be doing this. They're looking for a way to knock you off your script, because what the press secretary wants to do is keep people informed, but stay on the script that's agreed upon. Uh, and what reporters want to do is they want to knock you off the script because they think then they'll get stuff that you don't want them to know. Most days there isn't stuff you don't want them to know, but some days there is, you know, for a variety of reasons, not just that it's some great scandal. Some of it is about negotiation. You don't want to negotiate in public. So you don't want to tell people, well, we told them we'd take this and then they told them they'd take that. Sometimes it's national security. Um, so reporters push hard. And that's where I say it's different. Contentious is different than hostile. They push hard uh, to see how much they can get. Uh, and at the end of the briefing, nine times out of 10, you walk off and walk over them and laugh about something. And, you know, it is not it does not hurt the relationship. Uh, there are in every briefing room and this has become more common people who come in with a political point of view um that uh it that can can get hostile uh because someone's trying to make a political point rather than get information uh but uh you know most of the time it's just people who uh are genuinely interested in what the government's doing and want to know more they want to know more than what the press secretary is telling them and they've got a variety of ways to do that um, and you just have to be aware of that. Joe, to what extent did President Clinton critique uh, your performances, uh, quote unquote, at press conferences? Uh, and what was the general view about the role of the press secretary and uh, and how you conduct yourself? Yeah, th you know, very different than Donald Trump um, uh, in this way. I don't think he ever watched one of my briefings. And if he did, he never called me and said that was a good briefing or that was a bad briefing. Um, he just had more important things to do. Now, there would be times where I would uh, move the ball on something and we'd tell him afterwards, like this went well, or I screwed something up. And I would say, I screwed this up. Here's how I'm going to clean it up. But you may get a question about this. Um, the, the, the place where he used to criticize me was we would be having a kind of, you know, a big part of the job is getting the president ready to go out and deal with the press, not just the press conferences, but the little, you know, the little shouted questions and things. And the president loved to answer those because he liked to show people how much he knew uh, and he knew a lot. Um, and, you know, the press secretary has to get him ready. So I have to go and take 10 minutes and say, here's the questions you're going to get. And here, here are the answers. Now, it's, you know, a little weird for someone who did, who like me to tell the president what the answer is, but he's doing a lot of things. I'm focusing on making sure that everybody's equities are, you know, included in this answer and it's buttoned up. And he would occasionally, you know, and it's just occasionally I'd say, here's, here's what our position is. And he'd look at me and say, tell me exactly how many electoral votes you got. And I would say, Mr. President, I didn't get any. And he'd say, so why are you telling me what your position is? Did anyone vote for you? And I would say, well, Mr. President, the chief of staff likes this answer. The secretary of health and human services likes this answer. The attorney general likes this answer. I like this answer. But if you don't like this answer, go for it. Give me another one. 
and he'd laugh and I'd laugh and we'd, we'd move on. Um, uh, but he didn't watch. Um, and if he did, uh, he just it never became a subject, uh, a point with me. What presidents want uh, at the end of the day is they want you to fight for them. There, there's no president who thinks they have enough people fighting for them. And I think you can do both serving the press and the country and fight for the president at the same time. Uh, and if you get if you bend too far in one direction or the other, uh, you can get off course. I, you know, I used to tell people that it's uh, evaluating the job of the press secretary is very unusual. You know, if you have an end of the year evaluation. Because if the president gives you an A plus, you've done a bad job. And if the press gives you an A plus, you've done a bad job. You want both of them to be giving you like a gentleman's C, you know, because if they're both a little bit pissed off at you, you know, you've found the balance. You can't please the president all the time. You can't please the press. Your idea is to you kind of just carve that path that works for the administration Um uh, but does uh, defend the president and does uh, fight for him where appropriate. How difficult, uh, Joe, was it for you to work with uh, President Clinton during his impeachment uh, proceedings? Uh, that must have been a very tense time. Um, and I'm sure he was not a happy camper. And I'm sure you weren't. Tell us about that. Yeah, that particularly at the beginning of that, that was very difficult. Uh because, and, and I'll tell you why, in addition to the, you know, the political scandals and, you know, the tidal wave that hit us, uh, President Clinton was always someone, no matter what was going on, that you could go in and talk to and have a reasonable conversation, maybe after he yelled at you for a few minutes, but, you know, to come out with a good result. When the impeachment stuff happened, the Lewinsky um, uh, story um, uh, broke uh it became a legal issue uh, for the president, which meant we couldn't talk to the president about it. Uh, I remember the day it happened, uh, sitting with the president's uh, counsel and saying, here's what I need to ask the president. And he looked at me and said, if you ask the president any question and he answers, you'll be in the grand jury tomorrow uh, as a witness. So it was um, it was it was really difficult on a number of levels. One was, um, you know, I I had genuine affection for the president uh, and uh, just watching this um, unfold was difficult. I had genuine disappointment slash disgust when I found out what the truth was. Um, And that was difficult. Um, But um, I felt I think the most thing uh, while we were getting through this was feeling a little helpless and not being able to do what I normally do, which is um, go out and tell the truth, even when it's bad, because I wasn't allowed to talk about it and fight for the president. You know, uh, uh, even when, you know, he made a misjudgment on some health care bill or, you know, it wasn't exactly right on that. Um, so it was it was it was difficult, I think. What got all of us through, and the interesting thing is nobody quit in protest. Um, what got all of us through was as bad as we thought he was, the Republicans were acting worse to try to overthrow the government and remove a president uh, for a terrible personal mistake. Yeah. Um, and I think that I think we all had a sense of responsibility 
not so much to the president at that point, but to the presidency. Uh, and there were a lot of people angry with him. Um, and, but if he'd been removed for that, we would, uh, you know, in 2020, we would have, George Bush would have been removed. Barack Obama would have been removed just because people on the right hated him so much. Um, and, you know, any opposing party could remove uh, the, the president, you know, based on, you know, the theory of Bill Clinton's case. So I think, you know, uh, most of us sort of hunkered down for a very rough eight or nine months, uh, knowing that our job was to protect the office, not the man. So you've been be behind the camera and in front of the camera during the course of your career. Um, right now you're in front of the camera again. <laughs> yeah, so, there you go. But I'm hardly the Washington press corps, so <laughs> I, won't give, I won't put a lot of curves in my questions. Um, what advice would you give, you know, to people who are uh, uh, in public relations and communications and who are thinking about turning to uh, politics or working, you know, with uh, – uh, the Congress or uh, other elected officials throughout the country. Um, has it changed since you were White House press secretary? Uh, if so, how and what advice would you give people aspiring to similar careers? Sure. Well, I mean, everything has changed. Um, and, and, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years, but, um, you know, the, it's the whole Moore's Law uh, thing where, you know, rapid change uh, is cut in half with each, um, you know, innovation. Uh, it was changing slowly in the 80s and 90s. The Internet uh, allowed the whole business to explode. And we're still finding pieces falling down that we, you know, we hadn't anticipated. So it's very different. It's now it's it's constant. It's up to the minute. Everyone is a content creator. The old gatekeepers and referees don't exist anymore. Um, there's as much misinformation out there as information. Uh, the approach, you know, the, the thing I say on the approach is there's one new thing and one old thing. The new thing is take advantage of the platforms that are there and create your own content. Uh, and that goes for the White House or any organization. Don't depend on the media to tell your story. Get them to tell your story, but tell it yourself. Um, the second is the old thing. Uh, which is you still got to tell the truth uh, because um, not telling the with the way the media works now and the Internet, your reputation can be destroyed in six hours. You know, you didn't used to have reputations destroyed. They, they were slowly destroyed. You can be gone in a day, you know, it's and it just doesn't matter what the story is. The, the ability to send a message and deliver it to people where they are is so powerful now uh, that you do have to stick with the old basics of, of telling the truth. I think anyone who wants to do public relations, whatever that means, because it means a hundred different things to a hundred different people, uh, I think are advised to do something in politics at some point in their life, particularly early. And the best thing you can do is do a campaign. Because you will learn quickly 90% of the things you will need, whether you go and work at the White House or whether you work at a fashion company. You'll learn how the media works. You'll learn how to get your point across quickly, efficiently, and uh, in a results-oriented way. 
And campaigns are a great thing because they're a meritocracy, uh, because they're narrow. They're, you know, they're, there's a terminus. There's, you know, you know, it's over on November one, two, three, four, five, you know. Um, so there's no time to, for people to play games. And if you're doing something well, you'll be given more. And if you do that well, they'll give you more. Whereas in a corporate structure, it doesn't matter how good you are. You generally kind of have to wait your turn. Um, and so I think that even if you plan to do corporate work, um, doing a campaign in your early 20s or your mid 20s is great just because it'll mean when you're in the corporate world, your turn will come faster because you will have learned stuff that all the people in the cubicles around you don't know. It's interesting you say that, Joe, because earlier in my career, when I worked for William Sapphire, you know, the late uh, columnist for the New York Times, when he had a public relations firm, I was involved in helping him run various political campaigns. That was, that was uh, those were among the first public relations uh, responsibilities I ever had. And it uh, served me well, you know, over the years. So I, I hear what you're saying. Um, Joe, wanted to ask you about your time with the NFL. That had to be quite a departure. Uh, from the White House, uh, even though it has its own emperor, if you will, <laughs> yeah. uh, the commissioner. Uh, tell us about that. What made you decide to go there, and uh, and uh, uh, and what what role do you feel the NFL plays in contemporary life? Yeah, you know, I've done some consulting with the NFL, and um, uh, you know, I I I really like the team. Uh, and I thought they could do things in a different way and get a better result uh, because they they were mired in a number of different scandals. Uh, and I was looking at that point uh, in my career for a new challenge. I had, you know, I was working at a pretty successful uh, consulting firm, uh, but wanted, you know, and you, you know that the trade off with consulting firms versus a corporate job is uh, you never you're never you're never able to get deep enough into the decision-making process uh, as you want. So for me, it was time. It was time to go back and do that. Um, and the NFL and the White House uh, are very similar, except for one big difference. Um, at the White House, <clears throat> uh, we take hundreds, if not thousands, of calls a day, and we had hundreds or not thousands of people to answer them all over the government. At the NFL, we take hundreds if not thousands of calls every day and we had a team of about 10 to answer them which meant we didn't answer a lot of the questions um and i spent the first you know six or seven months there struggling with this which is i you know i turn on espn and one of their 15 pundits would say something ascribing it to the nfl and i'd say that's not our position I, I don't know where, you know, you didn't talk to me. And, you know, I was always pounding on CNN saying, tell these people to call me. And, you know, they didn't because it was easier to do it the way they did it. Uh, so it was, you know, one of my, you know, I, I call this an innovation, but it really was taking it back to old school, um, which was uh, I decided that I was going to start doing briefings, you know, uh, for the NFL. And these were on the phone or, you know, if we did it now, we'd use Zoom. Um, and I remember, you know, calling ESPN and saying, hey, I'm doing this. And one of the real reasons I'm doing this is because of you guys. I mean, I just can't keep up with all your people. And they called me back and said, hey, great idea. Designate the one person from here that you want on the call. 
And I said, you don't get it. I want everybody on the call because, you know, you're, you know, uh, Keyshawn Johnson doesn't listen to Jeff Saturday. He listens to what he thinks. And I said, put them all on. I, because all I want to do is make sure before they go on television, they hear what we think. And it's not what I think. It's what the commissioner thinks. It's what the owners, more importantly, what the owners think. Um, and that was like a throwback technique that actually, uh, that actually worked. The NFL, uh, I knew it had a big influence on our culture um, uh, and our country before I went there. I underestimated it. It is really, except for, I, I can't even think of anything anymore that um, uh, is like this. It is the one institution that um, unites the country in interest. It doesn't mean the country all agrees. In fact, the country has 32 different views on, you know, it's, some of the country's a Packer fan. Some of the country's a Cowboy fan. Uh, there are a couple of things everyone agrees on. They hate the commissioner, but that means he's doing his job. Uh, and, you know, I, 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 I tried to help with that. And then I realized it was just inherent in the job. Uh, and we actually at times use that to our advantage. Um, uh, but it, there are very few things that the country as a whole gathers for at any given time. People don't go to church anymore. People don't all sit down and watch Walter Cronkite anymore. People sit down and watch the NFL on Sunday, uh, and Monday and Thursday and all of that. And that revelation for me and others had already had it is that's both an enormous responsibility when we screw up, everybody knows it, and it it reverberates through the country. But it's an enormous um, uh, opportunity to, you know, in the aftermath of the kneeling stuff and Colin Kaepernick, to do social justice in a way no other institution in the country could do. The NFL is doing, which it started with when I was there, and it's, only like grown threefold, they're able to get a message out that's even better than a politician because a politician is only going to hear, only 50% of the country is going to hear them. The other side is going to turn them off. Um, and, but the NFL is different and it's, you know, it's an enormous um, responsibility to be a steward of that asset. Uh, and I think that's what, um, that's what the commissioner strives for, and that's why he's a lightning rod, because he doesn't do the political expedient thing. Like, I'm just going to do this to get out of that. He's, you know, he wants to protect this. Um, you know, it's valuable in terms of uh, revenue it generates. But there's <clears throat> this intangible asset there uh, of being able to bring the country together um, Super Bowl Sunday being, you know, the the pinnacle of that uh, to send the country a message, you know, that, you know, one of the most iconic moments in, in football history is, you know, uh, during the Gulf War early, the first Gulf War with Whitney Houston singing the national anthem and the flyover that brought people together, you know, and um, for all of the nonsense and knuckleheads you know, in and around the NFL, there's still tremendous power there. Um, and uh, it's got to be protected. 
And that's, that's what made the job interesting. That's a very, very interesting response. You know, um, Joe, I have one final question for you. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a two part question. And, uh, now they, everyone should know this is one, this is a one lesson. When you get a two part question, answer the one you want. And if you don't like either answer, neither of them, but go ahead. Maybe you can combine the answer. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I want to ask you, uh, what are you most proud of in your career? And the second part uh, is, where does Joe Lockhart go from here? What are you doing these days? And how do you want to spend your fruitful, long life ahead? Yeah, so I'll answer the second one first, because uh, that's easier. Um, well, I think about the first one. Um, I want to concentrate on doing things I like to do, which means I do a bunch of different things. I have a contract with CNN where I go on TV and talk about politics and the government and that's fun. I mean, it's just it's and it's fun to not have every word be important uh, to to have to the ability to get behind a cause or, you know, explain something. And the world doesn't end if you get it wrong, because uh, it's just your opinion. Uh, I write a lot for CNN.com and others. Um, and I have joined a consulting firm, a company called Rational 360 that I work with them on. And I, 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 you know, I think over the years I'd gotten frustrated doing client work and now I, I really love doing it because I'm doing other stuff too. Uh, and uh, it's refreshing to go back and sort of, you know, energize that part of my brain uh, uh, to, to help clients think through a problem. Um, what am I most proud of? Uh, What's that? I say you remembered my first question. Yes, I did. I I always remember the question. I don't always answer it. Um, I'll give you a a very specific thing and then a broader thing. And they both really have to do um, uh, with the White House. Um, The specific thing is uh, my my best day at the White House was the day uh, we renamed the briefing room, the James Brady briefing room. Uh, And we had Jim and Sarah and the whole family in. And it was special for me because it's the room where I worked. So I had a personal connection to it. But more importantly, it uh, Jim's story was a story of no matter how hard they push you down, you can still add value to the country. And, and what he did was heroic. Uh, and, you know, it was not easy for him to get out and public speak. It was hard. Um, but he did it and he started a movement and that movement has been inherited by others. Um, and to be able to like put a plaque up on the wall was a big deal. And, and I remember telling Sarah, I said, and, uh, their son, you know, every day someone reports from this building, they're going to call it the James Brady white house briefing room. Um, I think, you know, broadly, you know, my I, I spent two years as the deputy press secretary, two years as the White House press secretary in a lot of very difficult situations. And I can honestly say that I never stood up there and lied. And it would have been so easy to do so many times. And I protected the things that needed to be protected, the secrets that needed to be protected for national security reasons. 
I protected those and built enough trust with our national security team that they could tell me what was going on and it wouldn't come out of my mouth, um, you know, someplace uh, either at the podium or off the podium. Uh, and at the end of it, you know, I, I looked back at that and thought that was hard, but I, I'm glad I did it that way uh, rather than taking the easy way. Wow. Well, Joe Lockhart, you have been terrific. You are a down-to-earth guy. Uh, you, speak, you speak the language of the people. And I think that your comments today were insightful, inspiring, and really gave us a picture of what life was like within a White House, something that uh, many of us turned away from during the past four years, perhaps, but hopefully we'll turn to again in the days and years ahead. So, Joe, on behalf of our listeners, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your views with us. Thank you for having me. It was a fun. I thank all of you for tuning in to another PR Masters podcast series uh, under the auspices of the Stevens Group and Compro. And until next time, dear friends, be well, stay safe. And I'm Art Stevens wishing you all the very best. Mm-hmm.